Let's pretend for a minute that you're picking a daycare for your child. You want a place that will be safe and nurturing, so you get in your car, list of local daycares in hand, and you start to drive. On one side of the street is a private daycare. It's required by the state to have a trained staff, a certain child-to-staff ratio, and meet health and safety standards. There's no corporal punishment. And if something goes wrong, you, the parent, can complain to an agency, and officials will investigate. On the other side of the street is a religious daycare. From the outside, it looks the same. But inside, everything is different. The daycare may not have to meet minimum staffing requirements. It could use corporal punishment within reasonable bounds. And depending on where you live, it's possible the only thing the daycare owner needed to open the business was a promise penned on church letterhead to follow health and safety codes. I kept on thinking that there was some sort of catch That's Amy Julia Harris, a reporter at Reveal. She had pretty much the same reaction I did when I first learned about religious daycares. How is this possible? How can two neighboring facilities follow such different rules? So she started asking people. The uh, spokesman was like, I don't know what you're not understanding. You're asking the same question over and over again. Amy explored these questions in a three-part series published earlier this year, and she found some pretty interesting answers. In some states, there are wild exemptions for daycares affiliated with churches. The loopholes have led to disastrous consequences, even deaths. And when tragedy does strike, the lack of government regulation means that many of these deaths go uninvestigated and unpunished. The conditions that led to the baby's death can fester, putting even more people in danger. On this episode, Amy shares how she investigated these so-called God loopholes and the people trapped in the middle of them. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Amy was new to the religion beat when she started this investigation. She wasn't sure where to start, but she was interested in churches, which are notoriously difficult to get information on, and began digging around to see what kind of public documents might be out there. So I sort of was looking for ways that um, churches interact with the government. Um, And so I started sort of just poking around um, and came across the idea of religious exemptions, um, where churches get special rules from standard um, government laws or specific regulations. That led her to a New York Times series from 2000 about religious exemptions for daycares. A couple lines in the story really caught her eye. And there were a few paragraphs in this massive series that just talked about how daycares in Alabama, like on one side of the street, didn't have to follow any rules at all because they said that they were churches. And on the other side of the street, there were these licensed daycares that had to be inspected and make all of these upgrades. A little more digging led Amy to a white paper written by a legislative aide in Georgia detailing which states in the country had religious exemptions for daycares. There were 16 in total. Each state handled things differently, so Amy started making phone calls, figuring out which rules were exempt in which states. Some might not require a background check. Others might allow corporal punishment. Once she figured out which states allowed the most leeway, she focused her reporting there. Soon she had the data side of her story in order. It was time to find the human faces at the heart of the problem. 
And I sort of started making this really, really macabre uh, spreadsheet of, you know, all of these awful accidents that had happened at religious daycares and all of the little kids who had died as well. Um, and from there, it was just sort of narrowing it down to um, which which of these awful accidents and deaths um, sort of resulted from this lack of regulation. But the thing is, since these daycares aren't regulated, they don't have the same requirements to report deaths to a government agency. So there's practically no paper trail to follow. Instead, Amy relied on past media coverage to find cases. You know, I put together a spreadsheet. I think that there were about 10 that we found that we knew for sure were religious daycares that were sort of within the time frame that we were interested in. And um, a lot of them, there, there wasn't a ton of information on what had happened. Um, so we sort of pulled it down to, to and decided to focus just on two um, where there was a lot of information um, and the families were willing to talk. That's how she found Juan Cardenas. He had placed his one-year-old son, Carlos, in a religious daycare in Indianapolis. Praise Fellowship Assembly of God had been recommended to Juan by a friend. He didn't know much about it, but he knew it was a church, and Juan was a devout Catholic. That was enough for him, and in some states that's been enough for lawmakers too. In the 1980s in North Carolina and Alabama, two states that are especially hands-off in this area, there was a push to regulate all daycares, especially when it came to the use of corporal punishment. But pastors and religious leaders pushed back, successfully arguing that regulating their daycares violated the separation of church and state. I talked to a few uh, religious um, lobbyists at the time who were in the room in the 1980s in Alabama, and they said one of their big arguments was, you know, well, we answer to a higher power than the state. We answer to God. Of course, we're going to do a good job. And the state said, okay, all right, we trust you to do that. That means in some states, the entire religious daycare system is built on a fragile system of trust. And sometimes, for parents like Juan Cardenas, that can come crashing down in an instant. Here's Amy describing what happened back in February 2012. Juan got a call at work. His son was missing, and the daycare didn't know where his son was, that he got into his car and, you know, was rushing over to the daycare, and he saw an ambulance pass. And he had this fleeting thought that maybe my son's in that ambulance. And then he thought, you know, there's, there's no way that's right, and he tried to rationalize it. But Carlos was in the ambulance. The daycare was understaffed and had lost track of him. In that time, the toddler had wandered off to the church sanctuary, undetected, and found the baptismal font. He drowned in two feet of holy water. Of course, accidents can happen anywhere, even in licensed private daycares. But in states that carve out exemptions, it's easy for some business owners to cut corners. Indiana, for instance, doesn't require religious daycares to maintain a certain child-to-staff ratio, a loophole that surely contributed to the death of one-year-old Carlos. But few states provided as little oversight as Alabama. You could say that you are a church, um, write it on, like, quote-unquote, church letterhead, just write a on a piece of paper saying, I am the church of, like, Amy Julia Harris, and I want a religious exemption. You just turn that into the state regulatory agency. They say, okay, and 
say Wayview, and then it's basically like a self-certification on the church's part that they've followed like these minimal rules, like that they've um, you know been inspected by the fire department, the building department, the health department, but no one from the state follows up to see if they've actually done that. So you just they basically rubber stamp every application that they get. This is the place where Amy wanted to focus her story. She wanted to prove that when it came to accountability and oversight, Alabama was the worst of the worst. But the paper trail was hard to nail down. Getting any sort of like comprehensive data was really, really, really hard. So um, I remember I had asked the state for, you know, all of the complaints they had gotten about religious daycares. And someone said, well, we don't write that down. We don't write down any of the complaints and we're not required to. She later found out that the agency does, in fact, write down complaints and sends them to the district attorney's office. But even after she had tracked down where the records were kept, Amy, who's based out in California, still faced a challenge in actually getting them. So in Alabama, um, they ask you um, where in Alabama you live in order to file a records request. And if you don't live there, they'll just deny your request. So uh, that was kind of a big a big hurdle. So I had, um, I had contacted a professor and asked him to, um, to file a few uh, Freedom of Information Act requests for me from there. Churches are powerful players in Alabama. 77% of adults in that state say religion is a very important part of their lives, according to a 2016 Pew Research study. And that really came out in Amy's reporting, especially when she tried to talk with agency officials. They didn't want to bash a church or appear to be anti-God sometimes, so it took a little bit of uh, finessing to get some people to talk. Some employees were hesitant to give their personal opinions on the issue, but the further removed she got from the core group of regulators, the more she found people willing to speak up. You know, the moment that you went around for basically any other agency, like fire marshal, police departments, health departments, you know, building departments were all you know, very quick to point out the problems with the law. Um, and I got sort of like a lot of, you know, internal notes that different inspectors had said, like, this is insane, that they can't regulate this. We've never heard of this. Like, and they got really upset and were candid about it in, in a lot of the notes that they filed to different agencies that, like, no one is regulating this and we can't do anything and we're really fed up with it. She also found plenty of parents willing to share their daycare horror stories. So what I found was actually really interesting, and this was common across the board for different states, is that parents often didn't realize there was a religious exemption. They didn't realize that churches faced different rules for their daycares. They thought it was like, you know, like a restaurant that you have to follow, like minimum health standards and be inspected. Um, they didn't. They didn't even realize that there was some sort of different um, standards for church daycares. At first glance, some of these daycares seemed nice. They were clean, and parents asked all the right questions. What's the child-to-staff ratio? What are the training requirements? Parents just were missing one big thing, which is honestly, you know, in the way that some of these places um, put it, like in Indiana, it's called, um, you know, a religious daycare it's called a registered ministry. And a lot of people heard registered, parents heard that, and they thought, oh, that means they have to be registered with the state. That means they're inspected and licensed by the state. You know, um, 
so for the most part, I think it was that parents didn't realize that they had put their kids in a daycare that was free from oversight until something went wrong. And it was then when they had called regulators to complain, like, my kid got hit in a religious daycare, that a regulator would tell them, well, you know, you put your kid in what is a license-exempt daycare, and a church can discipline a kid in the way that they see fit. Sorry, we can't do anything. Call the cops. What was really interesting was that I've never sort of reported a story by Facebook, and this was one of the first ones that I did, was um, there are a lot of moms on Facebook, and I found almost all of my sources on Facebook, like Facebook groups, and people would send me other people's links to their profiles. Facebook also led her to, let's just say, an interesting character, a woman named Deborah Stokes. So I just ended up Googling, like, horrible Alabama church daycares or something to see, like, some of the problems because I couldn't get any records. And the first thing that I came across was this Facebook post that someone had um, put up that said, like, scam alert in all caps, do not put your kids in this woman's daycare, she's a crook. And it's like, okay, and clicked on that. And um, it was one of uh, Deborah Stokes's former employees who just sort of detailed the chronology of, you know, how she was arrested for child endangerment, how she had run all of these crazy daycares, like one next to a porn store, one from um, what had long been an abandoned warehouse. And, you know, she just sort of laid it all out in this massive paragraph. Um, and it was just insane. And then I looked it up just to see if she was still operating after I saw that. And she still was. So I thought, you know, that's that's a really interesting story. Stokes is one of those perfect characters you look for in a story. She exemplified everything that could go wrong with religious exemptions. Stokes had created her own church and had gone on to open 12 different daycares by hopscotching across Alabama. Along the way, she'd failed to pay employees. Several of her daycares were unsafe and not up to code. Parents and former employees had sued her, trying to shut her down. But she fought back, and that had an effect on some of Amy's potential sources. But one thing that I ran up against was um, people were really, really scared initially to go on the record or talk because they were afraid that they were going to get retaliated against, um, A, by this woman who sort of had a history of harassing and attacking people. Like, she was threatening to sue them or, like, call the FBI on them if they talked to anyone. So... um, I remember I had to, when I reached out to them a few times, had to, you know, just talk to them for weeks and weeks and weeks, like not as a journalist, just as a person, like explaining what I was, sending them all of my past stories. Um, And they finally, finally got comfortable talking. Initially, they were all off the record. Um, And then finally, um, I had people agree agree to go on the record after they sort of found out that I wasn't going to go away and was always, you know, Facebooking them like every day, like, hey, are you willing to talk now? Her persistence eventually paid off, and some people agreed to talk with her. Next, she needed Stokes' side of the story. So Amy called her. I was hoping that she would talk, but, um, you know, a lot of times people just hang up or say no comment for stories like this. Um, 
but yeah, I talked to her on the phone for like two hours um, when I was in in Alabama, just in my car, um, and she was sort of going on and on and on. And the fact that she was talking for so long, um, I thought was a good sign. So we had set it up to just like talk in person. And um, yeah, then um, as I was in Alabama, I was on a reporting trip still. We were talking to some other people. um, And then my editor forwarded me an email that said like urgent cease and desist. And it ended up like Deborah Stokes had emailed my editor and said, you know, that we weren't welcome, and my favorite was, like, do not hop, skip, or swim on my property, and um, so we didn't. Instead, they pulled up to the property next to her property. Stokes called the police, and soon four squad cars pulled up. And, you know, we were sort of waving to them and started talking to, talking to them about what they knew about her daycare, um, but, yeah, they said that they had gotten a call that we were, like, harassing her and threatening her. I think she even used the term stalking her as well. So that, it was interesting. It was the first time I'd ever gotten the cops called on me for a reporting trip. time to publish, Reveal made sure Amy's stories got into the right hands. By partnering with the Alabama Media Group, the series found a home in publications across the state. Now things could be changing for Alabama's religious daycares. Shortly after the investigation came out in April, an Alabama lawmaker proposed a bill that would regulate these daycares. Um, I was really, really surprised. I mean, it was it was cool to see a reaction um, that quickly. Um, but yeah, I was very, um, very taken aback just because, uh, like I had said before, in Alabama, that was the one state I actually thought that, um, you know, that the story wouldn't have any impact at all because no one had even proposed um, legislation ever to overturn the religious exemption. So the fact that they did that right after our story was um, was very cool to see, especially um, that quickly. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and head on over to irie.org slash podcast to browse our archives. I'm leaving the show for the summer to do an internship at WBUR in Boston, but I'll be back as your host this fall. In the meantime, we'll have some new voices for you on the podcast. Look for a new episode in July. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins is our editor. You can find both of our emails in the show notes. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Podcast. Podcast.